Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Modern Money Donuts, a show about modern monetary theory and ecological economics. Um, my name's Gabrielle Bond. I'm the organizer for the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group, and I'm also a director at Modern Money Lab. And I'm here with my co-host, Stephen. Hello, I'm Stephen Hale. I'm Adjunct Associate Professor at Torrens University here in Adelaide, and I'm also an economist at Modern Money Lab. So in Australia, if you're listening in Australia today is a public holiday, you'll know it's Australia Day, but it's also Invasion Day or Survival Day for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, I want to acknowledge today that we're on stolen land and I want to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm here on Ghana land in the Adelaide city. Stephen, whose land are you on? I'm on the land of the Paramank people in the Adelaide Hills. Um, so our guest today, um, I'll just quickly introduce him. Our guest today, uh, Philip Lorne, was recently made an adjunct professor at Torrens University, Australia. He's a former associate professor in the business school at Flinders University and currently uh, also a visiting lecturer at the University of Adelaide. Uh, Phil is also a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity and a member of the Wakefield Futures Group of Concerned Scientists. Uh, Professor Lorne, our friend Phil, uh, founded the International Journal of Environment, Workplace and Employment in 2004, and he served as a founding editor of the journal until 2009. Phil is one of the main developers and promoters of the Genuine Progress Indicator, also known as the GPI, which it, as an indicator of social well-being and one of, um, uh, Phil is one of uh, Australia's leading ecological economists. So we're very pleased to have him on our show today. Phil's undertaken commissioned work for the governments of South Australia, Queensland and Victoria. He's published many peer-reviewed research papers, including in A-star rated academic journals and written or edited several important books relating to the principles and policy apps aspects of sustainable development, most notably his 2016 book, Resolving the Climate Change Crisis, the Ecological Economics of Climate Change. Wonder if we can bring in our friend and esteemed colleague, Phil Lorne. Yeah, let me just say something while we're doing that. You might remember that in our first show, we explained we're living well beyond some of our planetary boundaries, particularly relating to climate change. Phil, is climate change the issue or is it something more fundamental? Oh, well, firstly, having me on, uh, welcome the opportunity to say a few things today. Um, I would uh, argue that as much as climate change is a, obviously a very serious problem, it's a symptom of a much larger problem, and that is the excessive scale of the economy relative to the supporting ecosphere. So many of our global environmental problems are symptoms of this much larger problem of excessive growth of the economy beyond what the natural environment can ecologically sustain. So Maybe just we can get the second so, slide so, up. So dealing with climate change. Well, so dealing with climate change, yeah. you just can't deal with it as a separate problem. You have to deal with the underlying cause of the problem, as is the case with global environmental problems. Could we perhaps put the second slide up, Shane? Not the not the first one, which has got Phil's picture on. Um, if we can move to the second one, uh, 
Could you explain this picture for us, Phil? This relates to what you were just talking about, I think. Oh, okay. So uh, this is work that has been undertaken for some time by the Global Footprint Work, and they uh, uh, established an indicator of the ecological footprint. Uh, what is the ecological footprint? It essentially measures the land area required to provide the resources to absorb waste and provide the key ecosystem services to support the economy. Uh, and you can see the, uh, the sort of the reddish line uh, has been going upwards since 1961, uh, indicating that, the, and this is at a global level, that the ecological footprint so demands on level have increased pretty much over period since 1961. Uh, you can see a green line represents the biocapacity of the planet. So where it says one year on the horizontal axis, that's one. We've only got one Earth to provide or supply or provide the land area uh, in order to generate the resources of waste provide ecosystems on an ongoing basis. So the biocapacity green line represents sustainable supplies of resources and the capacity to absorb waste. Green. The red line demands on the planet, and you can see that around about 1970, our demands at the global on the planet exceeded the planet could right. supply on a sustainable basis. When yes. was the tipping point? So it's 1970, according to yeah. the Global Footprint Network. So you might ask, how can the ecological footprint exceed biocapacity? Uh, because at present, around about 1.7 Earths, that only goes to about 2017. It got up to about 1.7. Uh, it fell back to about 1.6 Earths because of the COVID pandemic, but it's since gone back up to about 1.7. So we're back where we were at about 2019. So how can you... Uh, ecological print uh, beyond what the planet can provide on a sustainable basis. Well, you can do it only because uh, humans are starting to eat into natural cattle. So a forest can provide trees on an ongoing basis forever, so long as you extract or harvest timber no greater than the forest can grow timber, regenerate. Uh, if you uh, start harvesting beyond generation rate of the forest, uh, you're not only consuming income, you start consuming the capital with the forest itself. And you can keep doing that, but you can't do that forever. What we're doing is essentially only consuming the income generated by natural capital, but we're eating into the stock natural capital. Uh, and of course, you can't keep doing that. Point seven Earth that really represents is it's telling us that if we were to require resources and absorb, uh, sorry, and generate waste that absorbed by the natural environment, and of course, uh, enjoy services provided by uh, natural environment, key ecosystem service, on an ongoing basis, given at the rate at which we're using resources and generating waste now, do that on an ongoing sustainable basis, we would need 1.7 Earths, and we've only got one. But in a sense, that means. The resource demands and the waste generated to sustain the economy, the global economy at its current scale, is ecologically unsustainable. So we're well beyond. We're in overshoot. Yeah. As, uh, okay. Some folks from Global Foot Network referred. 
and and it's because of that overshoot that that well that's the underlying cause of our global environmental problems including climate change so yeah. hopefully just moving towards renewables won't be enough uh we may we have to have the technical capacity to move towards renewables but what we have to do to move towards renewables would still be at a scale that can be ecologically sustained I might just usefully summarise a little bit because you're, uh, although uh, um, it's it, uh, it's fine for the show, uh, your internet connection isn't all that good, Phil. So we were dropping out, or at least it was dropping out for me a little bit there. But what Phil was saying, I think, is that we are far from living sustainably at the moment, and we we're far we've been far from living sustainably, and increasingly far as a planet since 1970. We mentioned um, some of the sustainability principles that people like Herman Daly have uh, explained in the past, in a previous show. So that means we're emitting waste more quickly than the environment can safely absorb it. It means we're using renewable resources more quickly than they can be renewed. It means we're using non-renewable resources more quickly than they can be replaced. And these people at the Global Footprint Network, they're not, uh, they're not jokers. They are uh, a variety of uh, very highly credentialed Earth system scientists. And what Phil was just saying yeah. mm. is that we are now, uh, according to these guys, 70% beyond our uh, global planetary boundary in terms of our impact on the planet and that this cannot be sustained for very long without having a severe impact on our ability to provision ourselves on this planet in the future. If I could ask you, Phil, um, we obviously then need to move back within our biocapacity and we need to do it quite quickly, but we need to do that in a way which maintains people's existing quality of life and even improves it. Is there a useful indicator or guide that policymakers could be looking at to help them when it comes to moving us towards a, a future which is both sustainable and providing people with a good quality of life? Uh, yes. Uh, let me just point out from a sustainability point of view, uh, no economic indicator can tell you where the economy, whether we're talking at the global level or the national level, is with respect to the capacity. That's the maximum sustainable scale of the economy. You uh, you need the local indicators and, of course, the But, of course, once you've perhaps uh, brought the scale of the economy back to within something that is ecologically sustainable, which an economy that virtually doesn't exist to one is at the maximum sustainable scale, so the range of scales you can operate at, you then have to ask the question, what's the most appropriate scale? And an indicator that's very useful as a guide in terms of where you perhaps should operate uh, within zero and the maximum sustainable scale is the genuine progress indicator, the GPI. Could we have the next yeah. slide, June? Just while, while Phil's talking about that. This is a slide from a presentation that Phil did last year. Don't worry about the 2011 uh, at the top there, but perhaps, Phil, you could explain uh, how the Genuine Progress Indicator 
uh, uh, does what you were just saying and something about how you go about uh, estimating the genuine progress indicator for countries and maybe why it's a more useful indicator than gross domestic product, which everyone's heard of. Yeah. Uh, well, let me just say something about the GPI and why it's because there's a lot of misunderstandings about the GPI. Uh, a lot of people will see some of those items. There's some benefit cost items. So you estimate the dollar value for these items and you quite at least attract the, the cost items from the benefit items to come up with the bottom line figure for the GPI, which you can see down the bottom there, uh, as opposed to GDP, which just simply adds things up. So if economic activity, whether it's beneficial or whether it's detrimental, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just all added up together. Uh, but uh, a lot of people will look at those items and say, well, I think there's something else that perhaps should be in there that uh, uh, is an indication of people's well-being. Uh, well, let me just say from the beginning that the GPI indicator is not designed to measure our top welfare. It's not meant to include everything. What the genuine mm. progress indicator attempts to do is to measure the contribution that economic activity makes towards our well-being. Okay. Mother Nature. That's a very good distinction, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so Mother Nature provides all these services anyway. Um, I guess you could probably say that human beings are dissatisfied with just the services provided by Mother Nature. You don't want to sit on a wooden block it's not comfortable. So, so we things like support. education and, um, you know, arts and... And no, community just, just, just that we have uh, like a wooden chair. Wooden chair is far more comfortable to sit on the wooden log. So we have the so economic activity adds value to the value that's already embodied in natural uh, resource. So Mother Nature provides. So um, there's uh, you know we there's a lot of about um, various theories of value, you know, there's the labour theory of value, and, and one of the great problems with the, the labour theory of value is it, it assumes that all values created by labour will, in fact, nature provide to start. And what we do in production is we add more value to the matter and energy involved in resources. We just transform natural resources through the agency of human-made capital, that's plant machinery, equipment and labour, into things that have gross value. Uh, but, of course, much as that adds value, it's beneficial, it comes at a cost. The way we organise ourselves, if some people are unemployed, there are other social problems, so we need to track those costs from the economic benefits generated by adding value through production. Uh, and, of course, we sacrifice some environmental value. So we cut down a tree, uh, even if we do it on a sustainable basis, there's some loss. Of ecosystem value and, and so forth. of course if we do it unsustainably that's a significant cost so yeah uh economic activity adds value provides benefits comes at a cost and and what the GP attempts to do is to measure the difference between the benefits and costs and ideally operate at a scale where the difference between the two is at a maximum you don't have to be exactly at is sometimes referred to as the optimal scale but somewhere around it that's the desirable scale. And that's likely to be much smaller than the maximum sustainable scale. So you don't really want to be right at the ecological surface. You want to be somewhere uh, much uh, with a scale of economic activity much much smaller than that. And so I can help us just determine what that, that appropriate scale is. 
Phil, you've calculated the GPI for every country in the world. Is that true? Uh, well, not quite. I've, I've, uh, close. I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in a position to be able to do it. I just need some, some funding to be able to do it. But I've done it for about a dozen countries. Really well for about four. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so a template exists for me to do that. Um, and, of course, then I'd be able to uh, calculate it at the regional level, also uh, at the upper level. That's very exciting. Yes. I I, um, I think uh, in when I was looking at your bio, you had done a calculation for South Australia, which is where we are. Um, and that is actually available from our Modern Money Lab website, uh, modernmoneylab.org.au. And if you go to, I think it's resources, there is, uh, it's one of our working papers on our website. So anybody can go and have a look uh, at that. Um, please, uh, yeah, make, make, uh, make it available if you want to have a read. So would it be fair to say that gross domestic product, which everybody is still obsessed with and policymakers focus on and are terribly scared if it ever falls and people start talking about a recession, that is just a measure of the total amount of spending on goods and services produced in an economy over time. It includes a lot of things which are in fact costs and not benefits at all. So. It's certainly not a, a good measure of well-being on, on that score. And it also includes a lot of activities that we undertake, which actually are just defending us against other costs which have been generated as a result of economic activity. The classic example people often give is uh, if uh, um, uh, 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 an oil tanker is hulled, then trying to clear up the mess adds to GDP although it's just purely defensive. If we end up with a climate which is so hot you can't go outside and we need uh, air conditioning, then the spending on the air conditioning as to gross domestic product as well. Whereas the genuine progress indicator is an attempt to identify the major benefits and costs of economic activity, not just the economic ones, but also the social ones. So I notice you've got the costs of both involuntary unemployment and indeed overemployment in the calculation and of course the ecological ones too. I imagine that many of these cost and benefit calculations are bound to be to an extent subjective. Um, uh, 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 is, is that fair as well? I mean that's a criticism you sometimes hear of the GPI. Oh that's fair. It's not easy to calculate these things but uh... I just say to the people who um, the GPI, I don't think it's difficult to be critical of the GPI in itself mm. because it's 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 economics. You know, you're comparing the benefits and the costs of whatever you're doing, mm. which is to economics, even mainstream economics. Um, so for those who it's difficult to be critical. Well, I think. We might have... the of, the, of the calculation of the various items I, I can be justified, but I say to those people, come up with a better method to calculate them. I'm, I'm more than, if they can come up yeah, with a better yeah, method, sure. use, then I'm more sure. than to use it. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I that think... we should throw the baby out with the bathwater just because it's difficult to calculate some of these items. Yeah. So if, yeah, if policymakers were to move to the GPI as their main focus uh, 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 and away from 
just the scale of economic activity, GDP, what difference would that make? Uh, it would indicate that, so I, I don't know if you've got the slide, comparing the per capita GDP and per capita GPI for Australia. Uh, we can put that slide up. Shane, can we have the next slide up? That's the, there you go. You can see GDP per capita per person rising for Australia over time, whereas yeah, the genuine growth indicates much flatter. It, yeah, that's for the period 1986 to 2016, so it's a little bit dated. But the red line represents the per capita PPI, and you can see over the over the study period that it hasn't risen at all compared to the rise in per capita uh, GDP. Uh, some people will call it the GPI because if you if you um, recall the the previous slide where you had all the uh, benefit and cost, and there are a lot of cost items, but I could break up uh, one of the benefit items. Uh, so that you had almost any benefit items as as, as items. So, uh, uh, form of why uh, has GDP. Australia's gross domestic product yeah. risen much faster than its genuine progress indicator? What explains the growing gap between the two? Well, okay, well, it's interesting. Uh, well, something I, I haven't mentioned about the GPI, apart from measuring benefits and costs, it. Uh, uh, and getting back to the point I was making about the, the GPI, a lot of people it's, it's focused on many costs. Well, in fact, one of the benefits that's included in the GPI that's not included the GDP is household labour. And it's enormous. Wow, that's a big it has one. enormous yeah. value. So bear in mind that the, the GPI is lower than the GDP and the GPI is including household labour, which the GDP is. Um, so why is the GDP... Well, obviously, the uh, level of spending on services within the formal economy has grown over time. Um, I've worked out that about for country, a lot of countries, about 25 to 30 percent of 60 years has been due to nothing more than a lot of economic activity being transferred from the unpaid informal sector to the formal sector. So it's no real increase in economic activity at all. Mm. Uh, now, uh, um, if you have a transfer from the informal to the formal uh, part of the economy, uh, as much as that will lead to an increase in GDP, it doesn't lead to an increase in the GPI. Right? Because uh, household labour, if that's what's happening, fewer people uh, are doing household labour, they're paying for household labour services and, and so forth, or they're getting someone to mow their uh, yeah, yeah. themselves and so Makes forth. Sense. Well, that means that the value of household goes down, but the uh, value of uh, goods under consumption goes up. So one just cancels the other. Whereas with GDP, the uh, consumption goes up, but uh, since household labour is not in GDP, there's nothing going down. So uh, as much as there's no increase in it, well, it's frozen. So it's not mm -hmm. even an increase in economic activity. But, a, but an increasing percentage of uh, even formal economic activities are what you mentioned you've seen, uh, defensive and relative measures. So, mm. you know, if climate change really takes hold and, and, and uh, the Earth's and oceans start to rise, uh, we might find that the Netherlands is spending an enormous percentage of its GDP simply raising the dike walls yeah. so it doesn't get flooded. Uh, and that's... 
Like that would increase its GDP, but it wouldn't increase its GDI because defensive and rehabilitative measures are not yeah. included in the GDI. Not yeah. saying that they're not beneficial. They're not saying they shouldn't do that. They're welfare maintaining. When you raise the dike ball, yeah. you're not increasing the well-being of people in the Netherlands. You're preventing the country from being inundated and with seawater, but it can cost that. That's going to use resources. It's going to uh, lead to environmental costs. So environmental cost item go up. Uh, the benefits falling whilst the GDP yeah. is rising. Yeah. Um, okay. I think uh, I think that's where we could perhaps bring uh, modern monetary theory into this discussion because we've focused, like, uh, uh, obviously a lot on ec ecological economics today, but. The, the resources that countries have to do that kind of mitigation and um, protection for their citizens against the worst of the effects of climate change, what does that have to do with um, monetary sovereignty? Do we have time to talk about that for a few minutes? I, yes, we could. I mean, uh, what we from more monetary theory is that as something is physically possible to it can be done in the sense that there's no financial constraint uh, it might be a financial constraint to you and me uh, even a very very large wealthy company to do it but no financial constraint country if the central government monetary sovereign it can always find the money to put resources that are idle to use to deal with environmental problems the problem that a lot of countries do face is that uh, we saw that the global economy has grown beyond its ecologically sustainable scale and that's because more than half the world's countries have grown beyond their maximum sustainable scale so the great yeah. difficulty that some of those countries have is that they need to allocate more resources to deal with these problems at a time when they're already using resources beyond what can be ecologically sustained so they're going to have to make some yeah. pretty tough decisions they're going to have to take resources away from trivial things, producing less junk. There's plenty of junk that gets uh, uh, produced and consumed uh, and uh, prioritise the allocation of resources in their sustainable limits. So they're going to reduce the quantity of resources that they, in fact, use because they're already beyond sustainable levels uh, and use them in such a way. And so we're probably going to uh, see uh, if you use the GI and, and, the, and the ecological footprint as a, as a way of guiding uh, the physical scale of the economy and trying to keep it within logical limits, uh, it will force country to use resources uh, more prudently. After yeah. at present, we, we don't use or country doesn't use them as prudently because uh, what we tend to do if we need more resources to do something, we just extract more resources from the environment, and so the ecological just goes up. We go beyond yeah. ecological, sustain, ecologically sustainable limits. As okay. an activist, I would, as an activist, I would love to see a campaign to replace the GDP with the GPI. I think that would be just absolutely transformative. Well, that's. I think that's yeah. a campaign that we hope to add to, and we hope Phil will be able to add to in the work that we're going to be doing at Torrens University over the next few years. I think this is, we're, we're going to need to get Phil back on in the near future. First of all, we're going to need to get Phil back on and we might do it from the uni. So we've got a great internet connection. 
Uh, yeah, apologies uh, for that. Yeah. Haven't I been coming? Not secondly, really. that's all right. Secondly, we we really haven't finished the story yet. There's lots of other things to say. First of all, we could have pointed out that although Australia has a lower GDP per capita than the US, Australia has a higher genuine progress indicator than the mm. US at the moment. And that has a lot to do with income distribution. We haven't talked mm. about distribution because if we're mm. going to, without increasing the scale of our impact on the planet, improve the quality of life of most people, then the distribution of income and wealth in very unjust economies where there is an extremely uneven distribution and Australia is bad enough, but the US is much worse, is something we need to address. And secondly, we haven't had time this time around to focus really on the fact that if economic activity has costs as well as benefits, as is measured by the GPI and Phil briefly uh, mentioned, we will discuss with him in detail next time, that means that when you get past a certain point, and there is a strong argument that in many countries we're past this point already, the costs of additional economic activity outweigh the benefits. In other words, growth, you can call it growth if you like, but it's not really economic. Increasing GDP, far from adding to well-being in the future, will subtract from it under those circumstances. So I'd like to ask Phil back on very soon to talk about those issues. Meantime, there's a couple of things we need to say before we say goodbye. First of all, we're going to be talking to the environmental activist who recently sued the UK government over climate change policy, campaign of Scottish independence, presenter of a modern monetary theory podcast, and person who was partly responsible for the Scottish National Party adopting a job guarantee as part of their policy platform at their recent conference, Kyren Robertson. We'll be talking to her next week. Really looking forward to that. And secondly, we need to say that on KRTD, in half an hour's time, there is a show with Joe Firestone, who everybody knows, uh, who's going to be running a show today called Democracy Hangs in the Balance, which I think is going to be a really uh, interesting show that nobody will want to miss, certainly including me. But it only remains really to say thanks very much to Professor Lorne for joining us today. That was fascinating as a part one. I think we're going to need not just part two, but parts two, three and four of this discussion, I think, as time yeah. goes by. So you'll see Phil regularly uh, on the show with us. And thank you to my co-host, Gabby. And we'll all say goodbye yeah. and thanks for watching. Thanks yeah. for watching Bye. and listening. See you next time. Thanks, Phil. Thank you.